So you guys don't know how tempted I was to come up here with a puppet with a big, long, gray beard, but uh, you're, you're, you're welcome that I didn't. So uh, my name is Noel. I'm one of the pastors here at RIV, and if this is your first week here, I uh, just want to let you know where we're at. We are in a series. Uh, we are working through an ancient statement of faith uh, called the Apostles' Creed, and this is the oldest uh, of the Christian church creeds. It was written um, a, a couple centuries after Jesus launched the church uh, by living a sinless life, dying on the cross, being buried, raising from the dead, ascending to heaven, all stuff that we've covered over the course of the last uh, couple weeks. And so this week, we are hitting kind of a a two-week bit of the Apostles' Creed that are kind of like two sides uh, to the same coin. And so you can think of today as part one, and next week is part two, so hopefully you'll be able to uh, catch next week as well. So before I get ahead of myself, uh, like we've done every week of this series, uh, we're going to stand up and recite the Apostles' Creed uh, together. Here's what it says. It says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. All right, you guys can uh, grab a seat. So today, we are hitting on a phrase that is a little bit controversial, but maybe not for the reason that you think it is. This is the phrase that we're covering today, where we say, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. So why is this phrase so controversial? Is it because of this word right here, the word Catholic? It's, it's actually not why this is controversial. This is actually super easy to explain. It's actually the easiest part to explain of this whole section. And it's because the word Catholic just means the word universal. That's what that word means. And so it's not the word Catholic that is so uh, controversial. It's this word right here. It's the word church. Because when you recite the Apostles' Creed, what you're saying is, I believe in the church. And I have to tell you, in in the conversations that I have with people, it seems like there are less and less people who are able to honestly say, I believe in the church. In fact, it almost seems like more people can believe in a lot of the other stuff, even the supernatural stuff that's in the Apostles' Creed. But when it gets to that phrase, I believe in the church, you're like, well, I'm not sure I actually believe in the church. There's this phrase that has been used for as long as I've been in ministry that says uh, that I find myself to be a, a, a spiritual person, but I'm not religious. And that's a popular phrase that's been around in our, our, our world for, for decades, but I'm hearing that phrase more and more and more from people who call themselves followers of Christ. I hear phrases like, well, I don't need to be in a building to worship God. 
I go out into nature, and that's where I worship God. Or I don't need the church uh, to be a Christian. Besides, the church is filled with hypocrites anyway. And, and the thing that's crazy is, in a very real sense, all of those statements are actually technically true. <laughs> You don't need a building to worship God. Your whole life should be worship. Going to church doesn't prove uh, that you're a Christian. When I was a kid, we used to say, um, just because you sit in a tree doesn't make you a bird. Right? Just because you go sit in the garage doesn't make you a car. Well, just because you sit in a church doesn't make you a Christian. And that is true. Going to church is not the litmus test of whether you're a Christian. And yes, the church is filled with hypocrites. It's true. But for many people, this has become way more personal for them. Because belief in the church has been burned down in a lot of people's lives that I've talked with because of very real trauma. And you need to look no further than the popularity of the Mars Hill podcast. Uh, for those of you who don't know what that is, uh, you're, you're probably in the minority <laughs> Um, if you listen to podcasts, because it's a podcast that came out last year, and not only did it hit the top of the religious chart for podcasts, uh, for Apple Podcasts, it was actually the number three podcast in the entire world at one point of any kind of podcast. And it is the podcast that details the rise and fall of a local church called Mars Hill Church and um, its pastor, Mark Dis Driscoll. And I have talked with dozens and dozens and dozens of people about this podcast. And some people have found it to be triggering. Other people have found it to be cathartic and helpful. And other people had the podcast get, ha, cause them to get to a point where they're just like, you know what? I am officially done with the church. For me, listening to the podcast was very personal. It was very personal for a couple of reasons. First, I knew Mark. I didn't know him super well, but we're part of the same church planning network, a church planning network that he started, a church planning network that, by the way, kicked him out for a lot of the stuff in the podcast. Uh, he was kicked out of his own uh, church planning network that he started. Um, but that's not the real reason it was personal for me. To be super honest, the main reason the podcast was personal for me is because I could see some very ugly parts of myself in it. Early in my ministry, I was caught up in a lot of the unhealthy swagger that Mark had. And we as a church, we made wrong decisions. Uh, we burned people. We hurt people. And some of you may even remember that a number of years ago, uh, the pastor sat down with me and said, hey, Noel, if you're not careful, you're going to end up not finishing your ministry well. And they encouraged me to step down for a season. And so I took a sabbatical and I sat with people and I listened to them and I sought uh, forgiveness and, and, and reconciliation where it was possible. And, and I'm just thankful that we have a church like that where the pastors here at Riv had the foresight uh, to build systems and structures with checks and balances. And, and, and we had those before and we even have those more now. Um, we have a board of trustees at RIV um, with both pastors and lay leaders on it, um, both men and women on the board. In fact, the, the president of our, our board at RIV is a godly woman in our church, and I don't have a vote on the board, which is a really good thing. <laughs> I'm accountable to non-paid board members, and all of our elders do these 360 evaluations that look at our whole life every year, our character and conduct. And, and at the same time, with all those systems and structures in place, we still burn people at RIV, too. People still get hurt in local churches. 
Even the last couple of years, as we've tried to make the best decisions we could in a pandemic, we hurt people with the decisions that we made. Sometimes rightly, sometimes wrongly. There's, there's, it's, people get hurt in the local church, in every church. And that's why it's so hard for so many people that I talk to to say, I believe in the church. That's just a hard statement for a lot of people. So let's take a step back today. Let's take a step back and look at this idea. Starting with, what is the church? When the Apostles' Creed says, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, what is it saying? Now, your first reaction may be, well, well, the church is this place, right? It's this building. And in English, you would be right. In the English language, a church building can be called a church, and you wouldn't be wrong. Um, but I don't know if, if, you, like, if you're old like me. I don't even know if they still do this with kids today. Some of you will have to tell me. But there's this little thing that we used to say all the time as kids. We were like, this is the church. Anybody know this one? Okay, do, do they still do it? Kids know this one or not? Okay, all right, so here we go. We used to say, this is the church. Anybody remember it? This is the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people, right? Okay, there you go. Some of you grew up in the church like I did. All right, so here's the thing. It's a proper use of the word to say, this is the church and this is the steeple, right? That's a proper use of the word. This is a church building. But when you look at the Bible and you look at the early church, you will see that not one time in the New Testament was the description of a church describing a building. In fact, let me give you a couple of verses. There's hundreds. Let me just give you a couple. Um, the first is in the context of somebody sinning against you. Someone sins against you, Jesus says that what you do is you go to them and you talk to them one-on-one. -on -one. That's how you start. And then if that doesn't work, you bring somebody with you and say, hey, we got to talk to you. This is, this is going on in your life. And if that doesn't work, this is what Jesus says. He says, if he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. If he doesn't pay attention even to the church, let him be like a Gentile tax collector to you. Now, we're not going to cover the passage, but he's not saying you walk up to the closest church building and tell the stained glass how this person sinned against you, right? We all know that. We know when we read the context here that the church is the people. Acts 5.11, very similar. It says, great fear came on the whole church, right? About something that was happening in the church. That doesn't mean the church building was shaking with fear. Obviously, we know that, right? Acts 8, in verse 3, it says, Saul was ravaging the church, he would enter house after house, drag off men and women, and put them in prison. And this is actually a pretty important verse for seeing what the church is. Notice what he's saying. He says, Saul was ravaging the church, which is a singular phrase, that would, and he would enter house after house. So what he was doing is he was going into all these houses where these house churches were meeting. It was a bunch of house churches, but they together were the church singular. So there is a very real sense that you see throughout the New Testament of the Bible that the church is a singular universal entity. That it is spread out through the city, meeting in house after house after house, but it was one church. And when some of those leaders of that early church were thrown in prison, this is what it says in Acts 12, it says, uh, so Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. The church, the people prayed to God. Now, there are, like I said, there's, there's over a hundred examples, there's hundreds of examples of this in the Bible. I just want to show a quick few that we know this, Right? 
But think about it again with that little, that illustration from when we were kids. We say, here's the church, here's the steeple, open up the doors. You could say, the church is the people. I heard someone say once, the church is not the church until the church shows up in the building, right? So this may be a church building that many of us are in, but it is not the church until we show up. The Greek word that is translated church is the word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia in Greek means called out ones, people who are called out, and it can mean assembly. So it means people who are called out from something and then they assemble together. They, they gather together. In other words, the church is a called out people that assemble. It's what we do. The Bible gives us a lot of metaphors for what the Bible is or the church is. Uh, and the New Testament tells us that the church is a body with each one of us being a, a member of that body. And, and what that means is, right, like you're an eyeball, Right? You're a member of this body. You are an ankle, right? You are, I don't know, you're an appendix. We don't know what you do, and sometimes you burst. That's all we know, right? So we're all part of the body, but the the description in the New Testament is Jesus is the head of the body, and we're all necessary parts of that body. We're told that the church is a family, right? With olders and youngers and moms and dads and brothers and sisters. We're told that the church is a temple. A lot of times people like to say, well, my body is a temple. No, our bodies are the temple. We together are all the bricks that make up the temple that is the church. And all these illustrations, the uh, body, a family, a temple, they all imply the same thing. You cannot do Christianity by yourself. You are called out and you gather, you assemble together as a body. You can't do Christianity alone. Now, remember, I said there's two flip sides to this coin. Next week, we're going to talk about the local church piece of this coin. But today, we're going to talk about this part, I believe, in the Catholic church. Now again, the word Catholic, in this sense, just means the word universal. But here's what it means practically. All Christians, down through history, of all time, in every nation, in every church that have ever existed, are all together part of the one universal, holy Catholic church. And again, I want to give you a few verses, including that guy Saul. Remember I said Saul was ravaging the churches? Well, Saul, who was ravaging the churches, was saved by Jesus. And Jesus changed his name, his name to Paul. And then this very guy that was ravaging the church, dragging people out of their house churches and putting them into prison, became dragged into prison himself. Right? And this is what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, he says, I am the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church, singular, of God. Paul, who persecuted the church, was saved by Jesus, and then he was persecuted for following Jesus because he persecuted, <coughs> he says, the singular church of God. Jesus says basically the same thing in Matthew. Matthew 16, 18, he said to Peter, he said, I also say that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church, singular, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will build my church, singular. Now, I know I keep hammering that and I keep giving different verses. Why? Why is that such a big deal? 
Because if there's one church, it will transform how we as Christians interact with other Christians who are part of other churches and denominations. Back in the 90s, or back in the 80s, there was this quirky uh, comedian by the name of Emo Phillips. Does anybody remember Emo Phillips? Just a weird guy, a great, weird guy. But he had what I consider the greatest religious joke of all time. And I am not going to do it justice, but I'm going to try. Because it was absolutely, and I've already spoiled it, right? Because I raised the bar so high by telling you it is the best joke of all time. Um, and then I'm going to deliver it poorly, and you're going to try to predict the punchline, and you're probably going to be right, but it's still genius. Evil Phillips said, he said, I, I, I was walking along one day, I was crossing a bridge, and I saw this guy standing on the top of the bridge, and he was going to jump. And I said to him, don't jump. And he says, I have to jump. Nobody loves me. And Emo Phillips said, yes, someone loves you. God loves you. Do you believe in God? And then the guy said, yes. And he said, me too. Are you a Christian or a Jew? And he said, I'm a Christian. And he said, me too. What denomination? He said, I'm Baptist. He said, me too. He said, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And he said, I'm Northern Baptist. And he said, me too. And he said, are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the guy said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. And he said, me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region or Northern Conservative Baptist um, East Coast region? And he said, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes region. And he said, me too. And he said, are you by any chance, Northern Great Lakes Baptist Region Council of 1879 or, or, or Council 1912. And he said, I am a Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes um, Council of, of, of 1912. And I said to him, die, you heretic. And I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> now, we all know why the joke works, Right. It's such a genius joke because, because, because we have this tendency to make every single little issue into an important first bucket issue, right? We talked a number of months ago about buckets of belief and, and how we have these small little buckets that we should put our essential beliefs in and the buckets should get larger to beliefs that are not as important, but we have a tendency to dump everything into a little bucket and then we separate with one and over other, over those things. But we are all, every follower of Jesus, part of the one universal holy Catholic church. The church that Jesus promised he would build. The church that Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against. And what do gates do? They're not offensive. What do they do? They keep people from coming in, right? The, gate, the idea of a gate is, is, it is, it is defensive. In other words, while Jesus is building the church, the church is advancing against those gates. It is moving into hell's territory and snatching people from hell and inviting them into life. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 4. He says this. He says, therefore, I, a prisoner of the Lord. Remember, he's in prison now for... Wait, hey, there we are. Joel Smith, everyone. All right, Joel, 
you are no longer an appendix. We know what you do in the body of Christ. <laughs> uh, okay, I have no idea where we were. Ephesians 4, right? All right. Paul, who's in chains, says this. Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This is amazing. Paul, the persecutor of the church in chains for doing the very same thing that he used to put people in chains for, was snatched by Jesus from the gates of hell and placed into the church of Jesus. And now he is pleading with the church to walk worthy of that calling. Walk worthy of the fact that Jesus saved them. That they were on their way to hell and Jesus snatched them into life. And, and, And he's like, walk worthy of that. And what is he saying is walking worthy of that calling. It's right in the middle of that passage. The the point is in the middle. It says this, making every effort to keep, and other translations say maintain, keep or maintain the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. So a rhetorical question, what do we already have in the spirit according to this passage? We have unity. Our default position as followers of Jesus is we are united with one another. He gives us a bunch of examples. Look what he says. He says we have one body. That's the church. He says there's one spirit. That's the Holy Spirit we talked about last week. We have one hope. We have one Lord who is Jesus. We have one faith, one baptism, one heavenly father. All of that stuff is the stuff that unifies us. Every Christian everywhere in the world, if I read that list, would say amen. Every Christian would say amen. We are unified. So then what does Paul say? Walk worthy of this calling. And and how do we play that out? He says, make every effort to keep or maintain that unity. How? How? Through the bond of peace. That's our target. And the attitudes that go along with it is everything he described in this passage. What did he say? Humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing with one another in love. I want you to think for a second about the kind of Christian you just can't stand. We all have one, right? Like, you don't like what they believe or you don't like how they live it out. Uh, if that person's in the room, don't look at them. And don't turn away. From, someone turned away from me. I'm not looking at you then. Um, um, so, but just think of the type of Christian um, that you just can't stand. They get under your skin. You got that person in your mind? You are united with that person in Jesus. You are part of the same holy Catholic church with that person. Jesus, your Lord, loves that person. They have the same faith as you, the same hope in Jesus as you. They're proclaiming the same gospel as you when they were baptized. And so now it is your responsibility to walk worthy of your calling and make every effort to keep the unity you have with that person through the bond of peace. Gentleness, humility, patience, bearing with them when they do stuff you cannot stand. 
A few weeks ago, when we talked about the ascension of Jesus, we covered this verse in Ephesians 1. I just want to read it again. It said, he, that's God the Father, exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. That's where Jesus is, at the right hand of God the Father. Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, and every title uh, given, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he subjected everything under his feet, appointing him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills it in every way. This is a crazy verse, actually. It says, God the Father placed everything under Jesus' feet. And then there's this weird phrase. Look at this weird phrase. Uh, it is, it, he says, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. It's a weird phrase. It, feel, it feels grammatically weird for those of you who are grammar geeks. This could also be to the church. Again, weird. He says, Jesus has everything under his feet. God the Father made it that way. Appointed him as the head over everything, and head means authority. So he's the authority of everything for the church? What does that actually mean? It's actually kind of mind-boggling. What he's saying is, first, we are um, his, he'll go on to say his body. So what he's saying is, we, what Jesus is doing in the world, how he is exercising his headship, how he is exercising his authority in the world, is somehow shown to the world through the church. He gives us two examples. He says, first, we are his body. Like we saw earlier, we're all his body, right? And so that means that we, as followers of Jesus, we are his hands, we are his feet, we are his heart, we are his mouth in this world. And then he says the church is the fullness, what? The fullness of the one who fills everything in every way. To fill is a way of saying to be present. It means to extend influence. And that is what the church does. We, as Jesus' hands and feet and heart and mouth, We are present in this world. We inhabit the spaces of this world, our apartment complexes and our um, workplaces and our neighborhoods and our classrooms and our social media platforms. We inhabit those places and we extend Jesus's influence into those spaces by being humble and patient and gentle and bearing with one another. That's part of what we're saying. When we say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. That phrase, holy, means to be set apart. It means to be perfect. It means to be clean. It means to be righteous. Well, wait a minute. The church is anything but perfect and clean and righteous, right? From our perspective. But because of Jesus from an eternal perspective, we are. And and, and if we bail on the church when she messes up, we might as well bail on every Christian when they mess up as well. Because you know that Jesus isn't going to. He loves the church. He loves the world through the church. And, And later in Ephesians, there's this passage that we often forget is actually about the church. Let me read it in Ephesians 5. It says, starting in verse 25. It says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. 
He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, Paul says, but I am talking about Christ and the church. Okay, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to talk to the married men for a moment. And everyone else gets to listen because that's what Paul's doing here. In this letter, he's writing to married men in this context, and everybody else gets to listen in as he talks to the married men about something. This is what he says, simply. Men, your job is super easy. In your marriage, you just get to be Jesus. That's the calling. You get to be Jesus. And here's the picture of Jesus he gives in this passage. Jesus looks at the church, which in this context is his bride. This is another picture we have of the church. The church is Jesus' bride, Jesus' wife. And in the context of this passage, Jesus looks at her. He looks at his bride, and he gives himself up for her. He loves her and gives up everything he has for her. I mean, we as men will say, you know, I, 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 I throw myself in a grenade for you, right? But we wouldn't empty the dishwasher for you. And when we do, we, we, we think that we should be rewarded for that. What does Jesus do? It says he gives everything up for his bride. Everything. He gives her the reward of himself. And what does he do? He does it so that he can present her to himself. It says in this passage, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, other translations say any sort of blemish. He looks at his wife, his bride, the church, and he says, wow, perfect. Now, men, I'm only talking to you for a second, married men. Is your wife perfect? <laughs> does, does she have any spots? <laughs> oh, I'm in trouble. Or, or wrinkles? <clears throat> or any other blemish? No. <laughs> this is actually really important. But how do you according to this passage, present her to yourself. You look at her and say, wow, perfect. Paul says, this is a profound mystery. He said, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. Jesus looks at the church, which from an earthly perspective has spots and wrinkles and blemishes. And he looks at her as if she doesn't. And he pours out his love on her. And he says, wow, she's, she's perfect. Now, does, by the way, I, that's one of the reasons I don't think you should talk smack about the church because it's Jesus' bride. You talk smack about my bride and we're going to have a conversation. All right? How does, does this mean that we can't talk about the failures of the church? No, we must. Remember, this whole passage, all of Ephesians, is him writing this letter calling the church to walk worthy of their calling. He's like, listen, you got to walk worthy of this calling. He knows that the church is failing, and he's calling the church to follow Jesus more faithfully. 
But that doesn't change how he looks at her and how he loves her. I love what Ray Pritchard says about the Apostles' Creed. He says this. He says, the Apostles' Creed challenges us to set aside our misconceptions and our frustrations and say, I truly do believe in the church. I need to affirm that the church exists because of God, that this all-too-infallible, all-too-human institution that fails too often because it's full of fallible human beings is still worth believing in because of God. He started it. It belongs to him. These are amazing and even countercultural assertions, but they are also entirely biblical. So what do we do with this? Well, here's what we have to acknowledge. The church has hurt people. Sometimes the church has done that unintentionally, and sometimes all too often has done it intentionally. There have been people who have been dismissed and marginalized by the church. Sometimes the church doesn't do enough to be light in this dark world, and we contribute to the darkness instead of bringing light. We need to own that stuff. And... The church is still somehow God's messenger to this world to say, I love you. And I think it's precisely because we are filled with broken people with spots and wrinkles and blemishes. That picture becomes a picture of Jesus' love for the world. The fact that he calls everyone in the world to believe in him so he can take their sin and their spots and their wrinkles and their blemishes onto him and he can give them his righteousness. And we're going to screw this up. And yet somehow Jesus gave us the message to give. And so one of the ways we do this is we fight for unity despite our failures, despite our differences, while we're owning up to our failures and being honest about our differences. It's why we can say, I believe in the holy Catholic church. Holy means set apart. Catholic means universal. Church means called out ones who assemble. And so what we say when we say this is I believe in a set apart people of Jesus who down through history in every church, in every age, are called out to assemble so that the world can see how much he loves them. That's what we say when we say this. Now, there's a flip side to this, the local church, and that's the part we're going to talk about next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that we would people, be people who are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Make us gentle. Make us humble. Make us patient. And we confess we have not been. We've hurt people. We've marginalized people. We've, every one of us has. We as an institution have. And so we just pray that you would transform us more into, into, into the image of the head of our body, Jesus. I just think about that last song we sang. I just keep thinking about it while I'm preaching. Just the more that I follow Jesus, the more I find him to be faithful. We just thank you that when we are faithless, 
he is faithful. And so we just pray that as we follow him, you would make us more faithful. That you would transform us from the inside out and help us to represent you well in our community. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.